This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. For a long time, the only way to be near a coral reef was by scuba diving or visits to the local public aquarium. However, over the past 20 to 30 years, reef keeping has evolved and become much more accessible. Today, although many people have a piece of the ocean in their homes and businesses, there is still debate over which reef systems work best. My guest today is Bill Hoffman, a coral systems expert and the manager of the Smithsonian Marine Ecosystems Exhibit in Fort Pierce, Florida. Bill has spent the past 17 years managing marine aquarium exhibits for the Smithsonian Institution and worked closely with early pioneers in the field. Join us as we discuss coral reef systems with Bill Hoffman. We'll be right back after these messages. Molly, here's your dinner. <laughs> Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Bill Hoffman from the Smithsonian Marine Ecosystems Exhibit in Fort Pierce, Florida. Hey, Bill. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Roy. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it was actually pretty serendipitous, I should say, because uh, I've been thinking about setting up a reef aquarium myself. And at the same time, we actually had a listener who was very interested in getting some more information for his own uh, setups. He's looking at expanding a little bit. And, and so I thought, who better than, uh, than Bill Hoffman to help us with this some of these questions about systems. Uh, but, but before we get started, I kind of like to ask some, some uh, maybe more personal questions. Uh, so how did you first get interested in the aquarium hobby, and, and what was your first fish or, or uh, tank setup? You know, I, I guess if we can go back before the marine aquarium hobby for me, uh, I, my earliest recollections of aquariums are probably from about six or seven years old, and I know my, my father had set up several of them. Uh, the fish that I still have vivid memories of are just, you know, the basic neon tetras and, and angel fish, coolie loaches, those sorts of things. Uh, I don't think we turned to the salt water. I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, but beginning in the mid-1970s, we would take our family vacations down to the Keys and would go scuba diving. And so that was my first introduction, being uh, landlocked uh, to, to the Keys were in the Florida, in the Florida Key Reef system. And... Uh, 
that was you know the first time I saw those brightly colored marine fishes and and I think that led very quickly to us coming back to Pittsburgh and setting up our own saltwater aquarium, which in the late seventies we started to collect ourselves down for in, in Florida and bring stuff straight back to to Pittsburgh so um, I got some early experience transporting saltwater fishes as as well uh, but back then we didn't keep any live corals, so they weren't really reef tanks. Uh, my first real experience with reef tanks were probably at the Smithsonian when when I saw the coral reef display there and then set some up at home and then later was uh, lucky enough to get the job working with those same aquariums that I, I was first witnessed. Yeah, it definitely sounds like early on you, you kind of started getting a taste of uh, what your future was going to be holding for you. So tell us a little bit about the job at the Smithsonian uh, in D.C. and how you got the position there and the people you worked with? Well, I, I guess, you know, in, in something in talking to a lot of parents and, and students now, one of the things that I tell them is it's not necessarily what you know anymore, it's who you know. And so when I was in graduate school, one of my advisors had a lot of contacts at the Smithsonian's Natural History Museum and uh, told me about a job in the fish division there. Uh, it, it, I can tell you it sounds better than, than it was. Uh, that is working with preserve fishes. So I was, I like to think of myself was a glorified fish librarian. Basically we had preserved fishes in jars and in coffins, really big metal coffins for the larger ones. And we would loan them out to graduate students and researchers that were do, working on taxonomy. And so it was while I was there that I obviously I saw the exhibit in the Natural History Museum. And I had a friend who worked next to a, a curator there, Dr. Walter Aidey, and, and some of uh, the aquarists may recognize that name of, of algal turf scrubber fame. And so he was looking for a fish person to help him with a project that he was doing out in Arizona, the Biosphere 2. And so I spent six months working with him, collecting marine fishes. He was setting up basically a one million gallon uh, Atlantic coral reef and an estuary attached to that. And he, so he needed someone that, that knew how to collect fishes, keep them alive, transport them, and of course identify them. And um, so we did that for six months. And uh, so that, that sort of whetted my appetite for the reef hobby. And uh, I think after that, even when I was back in the fish division, I would still go up to the exhibit almost every day and just stare at the coral reef tank. And it wasn't long after that that it was very fortunate for me, but the manager of the exhibit at the time was leaving, and uh, I was able to step into that position. And so I've held that position, uh, well, started in Washington in the, in the exhibit in 1993. And then in uh, 1999, the museum was going through a major renovation, and they were going to restore the hall that the uh, it was called Exploring Marine Ecosystems Exhibit was in. And some of your, your listeners may remember the life-size model of the whale, the blue whale that was in the Natural History Museum, uh, I think actually from the 1950s up until the exhibit closed in 99. And so we were looking for a, a new home for the coral reef exhibit. And the Smithsonian maintains a marine station here in Fort Pierce, the Smithsonian Marine Station. And uh, I guess the county was always interested in having something for the public and the director of the Smithsonian Marine Station here in Fort Pierce heard that our exhibit was closing down and that we were looking for a new home for it. And um, so we were put in touch with the county, and, and uh, that blossomed into a, a brand-new exhibit. And then it was in 2001 that we moved the exhibit down from, well, it was actually when we opened uh, in August of 2001. So we moved the original coral reef exhibit down, a lot of our equipment, but... Other than that, our, our new focus here in Florida was, on, was to be on Florida marine ecosystems. 
And so that's what we, we have here now are six Florida marine ecosystems, uh, starting with a seagrass bed, a mangrove community. It's an intertidal display. Uh, we have uh, hard bottom habitats, both estuarine and, and near shore. And then, of course, the large, the showcase exhibit, which is our 2,500-gallon Atlantic coal reef tank. And it's actually larger than it was even up in, in Washington. But uh, that all started with uh, my introduction to Dr. Brady and of, of Algoturf Scrubber fame. And the, uh, just having been over there, the uh, coral reef tank's definitely beautiful. And you've got some incredible acropora just growing like crazy, I know. So, you know, I know over the past 20, 30 years, as you were kind of d- discussing, there have been major changes in recommendations for reef keeping, you know, whether it's substrate or filtration or lighting or, you know, even food. So it's been really confusing, I think, for some of the folks that are thinking about getting into it and even for folks that are in it now. Today, what kind of filtration, I guess, just in general, and then we'll talk more specifics, do reef keepers need to maintain their corals and potentially some fish, obviously, with them? And does it really vary depending on, upon the type of reef and animals? Yeah, it, it completely varies on what you intend to keep in there. You know, you could run a, a coral reef exhibit or aquarium uh, if you had no or very few fish in there with, without much filtration at all. You know, there are three basic types of filtration, biological filtration, which is intended to, uh, to deal with the dissolved waste that these animals excrete, namely the ammonia and in some cases the phosphates that come into the water. And then so you have the, the biological filters like under gravel filters or the original ones that I recall. I think we had those in my home aquarium back in the 70s. Uh, and they moved on to the bio wheels and wet dry and trickle filters. Um, basically all those are, are different ways for increasing the amount of habitat for those specialized bacteria that convert the raw ammonia into nitrates. And then once that happens with those bacteria, they kind of spit the, the nitrates back out into the water. And as good aquarists, then we should be doing water exchanges. Um, what we use here at the Smithsonian for biological filtration, and we like to think that we try to do everything here as naturally as we can, so we, we kind of minimize external or extra filters. But our biological filtration, I like to think, is in line with the way it works in nature, and that is through photosynthesis. You know, it's really uh, photosynthesis and photosynthetic organisms in, in nature that are responsible for maintaining good water quality. And ma- mainly what I mean by that is low nutrient levels, low nitrate levels, low nitrogen and low phosphorus levels, high dissolved oxygen, low CO2. All of those things are, you know, related to photosynthetic organisms. Algae, phytoplankton, attached plants, you know, they all remove ammonia, nitrites, nitrates, phosphates, carbon dioxide. Those all can become problems in marine aquariums. So what better way to deal with them? Honestly, when you look at the real world, it's truly the phytoplankton that are responsible for good water quality. Uh, And Walter Aidey, early in his studies, started looking at you know ways of maintaining a natural very extremely low nutrient system and went as far as to calculate that he would have needed a swimming pool with the natural population of phytoplankton so pretty sparse to maintain just a 500 gallon aquarium and, and that that wasn't practical and that led eventually to the algal turf scrubber he started looking for other photosynthetic organisms that had a very high surface to volume ratio which meant they were going to be very efficient at removing these nutrients from the water and so that, like I said, ran, uh, led to the Algalter scrubber technology. And sort of the other secret to that is, so basically we're creating habitat instead of for the bacteria, 
Uh, we're creating more habitat for what aquarists would call hair algae or, or technically is turf algae. Um, just energy or algae that grows in a very high energy environment, gets lots of light, lots of water movement. Anything that is growing fast, of course, is pulling more nutrients out of the water. So extremely efficient filters. But I've also seen you know, algae filters run with calerpa and ketomorpha. Basically, the key there is to allow these algae, these photosynthetic organisms, to grow and then to remove them. And what I've done for classes is that we, we add you know, a set amount. We weigh the amount of food every day that we put in an aquarium. And so I can do that for one week and in one hand hold, you know, the amount of food that we put into that aquarium for a week. And then in the other hand, I can hold a, the lump of algae that we extract off of our algae filters. And we're always adding more food to our aquariums than we're taking out. And, and kind of simplistically, the difference is our fishes are growing. There's algae growing in the aquariums that's being eaten. But it's a very efficient. In fact, in, in Washington, I think that we were over scrubbing our aquariums. We're removing too much of the nutrients from the water, not leaving enough of the nitrogen and phosphorus in the water for the zooxanthellae, the symbiotic algae living inside of the corals. Uh, one last thing that I'll say about the algal turf scrubbers is the trick is to run them at night, so to have them on a reverse daylight. The idea behind that is to have then photosynthesis occurring 24 hours a day, so that during the day when the aquarium lights are on, you have the algae and the photosynthetic organisms in there, removing the excess nutrients producing oxygen and then the algae scrubbers come on at night and uh, they are pretty much doing the same. They are scrubbing the excess nitrogen and phosphorus out of the water and in doing that we're able to get nitrogen and phosphorus levels that rival one of the, you know, the most pristine coral reefs. In fact, like I said, I think we were overdoing it in Washington and so when we moved the exhibit down here, one of the things I did was to reduce the number of algal turf scrubber screens by half and um, for many other reasons possibly too, uh, our corals are growing and doing much better here than they, they used to do up in Washington. Um, as far as other types of filtration, you know, there's chemical filtration, protein skimmers, I'm sure that's a, a, a term that everybody has heard, probably the most widely used type of filtration for, for reef aquarists. And that's just removing dissolved organic matter, mostly from the water. And in some, some cases, you know, it's, it's a way of getting rid of the nitrogen and the phosphorus while it's still bound up in complex organic molecules before it's broken down by bacteria into the simple nutrients that we see. Here we do use protein skimmers in our exhibits, uh, and basically in our coral reef exhibit, but well undersized from what most uh, hobbyists would see or would use. We also use activated carbon. Another sort of artifact of maintaining a lot of organisms in aquariums is that over time the water tends to turn yellow from the compounds that they are released and releasing, including the mucus or when parrotfish scrape on algae, that algae is, is leaking stuff out into the water. And so aquarium water tends to turn yellow over time. I and mean, we do use a, a minimal amount, given the size of our system, of, of activated carbon to help keep our water clear. And then mechanical filtration would be the other type of, of filtration that can be used in aquariums, and that's basically to remove suspended particles, you know, solid matter that might be in, in the water. And uh, here at the exhibit, we rarely use mechanical filtration. We're set up on all of our aquariums to use it, but um, that would starve some of nature's filters, you know, sponges, tunicates, oysters, clams are all some of nature's filters and, and we're trying to keep those in our model ecosystem. So we wouldn't want to star them and so as a result we rarely use mechanical filtration. In fact we're adding live phytoplankton to our tanks every other day. We're adding live Artemia noplia as a substitute for zooplankton. So we definitely don't, wouldn't want to remove those things 
with mechanical filtration. So that is minimal and in many cases probably not necessary for aquariums. But getting back to your, your original question, you know, I, I think that if you kept a simple system where you had lots of live rock, which can in a sense serve as your biological filter, a way of removing the nutrients, if you didn't add a lot of nutrients, if you weren't feeding your aquariums much, uh, and you were able to maintain the water clarity, that is to keep it from turning yellow with perhaps activated carbon, um, simply doing water exchanges uh, on occasion, you know, well, there, it varies how often you would need to do it. Water testing is kind of the key, you know, that, that can help you determine uh, if you need more filtration or less filtration. And that's the beauty of the algal turf scrubbers is we can turn our lights on those algae filters longer. If we need to lower our nutrients, we can make the photo period shorter if our nutrient levels get, get too low. Um, we we've definitely have some systems that I saw corals not thriving, especially soft corals like Xenia. I know some people either do really well with it or, or aren't successful at all. And um, what I've seen in Washington is it seems like aquariums that have large protein skimmers where they're maybe removing you know, Xenia and other soft corals can be found more commonly in lagoonal areas, places that have high organic loads. And so it makes sense then that maybe they need that. They extract some of those organic compounds as nutrients from the water. And if we're stripping our aquariums bare with massive protein skimmers, uh, those, those animals aren't going to do as well. So it sounds kind of like you're advocating, uh, you know, getting as close to sort of natural processes as possible. And, um, and just based on, on the, uh, the great information you, you gave, uh, it sounds like you're really a major proponent of the um, algal scrubbers, and those are kind of things that you, as you mentioned, can sort of turn on and off and, and use for various amounts of time to help adjust any of the major nutrient issues? Yeah, well, back, I guess, you know, back, back in the day, and I understand that's changing now, that, you know, there really weren't good ways of dealing with nitrates. Now, there are bacteria in, in nature that convert nitrates to nitrogen that can then be... Uh, removed uh, out into the air, but uh, in order for those bacteria to function, they needed to live in oxygen-free environments, which you can understand is not very good to have maybe associated with aquariums. So, um, you know, back up through maybe at least, the, well, into the 90s, as far as I, I know, uh, there weren't good alternatives for keeping nitrogen and phosphorus levels low in aquariums, and that's where the algal turf scrubbers come in. Again, it's a very natural, very simple way of doing that. But again, not just with algal turf scrubbers. You know, a lot of people put, I think I mentioned earlier, different calerpas and ketomorpha, different macroalgaes, and as long as they are removed from the system, you are still exporting nutrients. It's just that the algal turf scrubbers are a, a much more efficient way of doing that when you look at that, like I mentioned earlier, the surface-to-volume ratio of these little hair algae. But nowadays, if you start, if you read into the aquarium literature, you know, people are adding vodka to their aquariums, and, and there are chemical means of different media of removing, ways of removing phosphorus. So it's definitely not as necessary or not as helpful, maybe, as it used to be to use algae as a biological filtration when you can use some of these artificial means, that is, you know, adding the vodka, I, I think, creates, and I'm not sure of, of the details of that, but I just keep seeing it repeatedly, um, but I, I believe it gives a, a nutrient source for these bacteria, which then convert the nitrates into nitrogen, and then just the chemical media just binds up the phosphorus, which you then, you know, take out of your system and buy new and put more in. So, yeah, we do tend to, to try to stay as natural as we can, but there are many ways of, of accomplishing successful aquariums. And, you know, it depends on, it even depends on luck in part. You know, you can do everything right and still have 
something uh, unknown go wrong. So we just try to do everything as, as naturally as we can, but there are there are definitely mechanical ways of, of maintaining good water quality. But, you know, it all comes down to knowing your water quality, and that comes back to doing water chemistry. That's an excellent point. And we've got definitely a lot more to discuss with you, and uh, we'll first take a short break and then continue our discussions on reef systems with Bill Hoffman from the Smithsonian after these messages. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com We're back and continuing our conversation with Bill Hoffman on coral reefs and coral reef systems. So, Bill, you, you went into real good detail about the way you guys are maintaining the exhibits and, and the success you've seen with algal turf scrubbers as well as just management for different species of, of coral soft and, and uh, hard. Now, there's other components of reef systems that are also controversial and I uh, thought maybe we'd, we'd hit a little of those or, or get a little information on those. What are your thoughts on sumps to start with? Uh, I, I'm actually a, a, a big fan of sumps, and we have them where we can. Ideally, uh, a sump is a place where you can put you know, your protein skimmer, your activated carbon, you know, you know, your heater, things like that. The other advantage to having a sump is that it just increases the the total volume of your system. You know, there's kind of some truth to that that old saying, the solution to pollution is dilution. So just by having more water in your system, you're sort of diffusing or at least dragging out the issue where it, it becomes you know, more stable the more water that you have. So I, we do, like I said, we, we do have sumps wherever we can. You just want to make sure that if you do have a sump, that you perhaps you know you you turn off your pump and you just want to make sure that your sump can hold the amount of water that's going to drain out of your aquarium if the electricity goes off and that's a big big thing to know and you know some people think of sumps and refugia as the same and they can be but for for us we use refugia as well and um at least i i believe that the best refuges or refugia uh, actually uh, bill can do you mind uh, maybe describing for some of the beginning hobbyists, you know, the differences in actually what a sump is and what a refugia is, just so they know? Yeah, a sump is usually an, another container uh, or an aquarium or something that uh, is typically, well, it is housed below the aquarium so that your filters and your water from your main aquarium flows, drains down into it. And again, it just should be of sufficient volume that it can handle what would drain out of your aquarium in the, in the event of a power outage. But um, a sump, just pure and simple, a, a, a sump is just a, a place where you, at least in my opinion on it, um, would be where you can just 
keep you know your extraneous filters and, and things like that and it's also a way of just increasing the the water volume of your entire system of your overall system uh, just to give you more cushion in the in the chemistry of your system by having more water in it compared to a, a refuge or a refugium and that um, some many people you know combine that with a sump but uh, you know, if you think about what a refuge is intended for, and that is to to serve as a refuge for little prey species, little amphipods, little mycid shrimp, copepods, things like that. Um, if you have your refuge below your aquarium, then those little critters, you know, the idea being it's a place to restock or repopulate your main aquarium, they have to go through a pump to get back up to your aquarium. So when we set up refugia where where we can we install them above the aquariums and so we pump the water from the aquarium up to the the refuge tank and that way any of the little mycid shrimp or amphipods or little prey species uh, that are up there they don't have to go through a pump to make it back down into your aquarium they're basically just gravity feeding back down to the main aquarium but a refuge tank for us you know we have different algae growing in our, our refuge tanks that you don't see down in the the main system below uh, because the fishes eat them it's all the same water it's just isolated uh, from predators mainly is is what we use so we don't have any big herbivores or big predators in our refugia uh, one of our refuge tanks and you know it kind of carries it to a new level but the the idea behind having a, a refuge is a place to have that is a, a refuge for little prey species that can then sort of trickle into your aquarium one of the things that we've done is we've filled one of our refuge tanks with peppermint shrimp and uh, peppermint shrimp are, are simultaneous hermaphrodites, meaning they're, they're both sexes. And so <laughs> any two will do. And we just keep a bunch of them in one of our refuge tanks upstairs. We feed them, and they produce lots of larvae. And larvae is food. You know, that's plankton. That's part of the food web for a coral reef ecosystem. And so we, we have these refuge tanks that are constantly producing the shrimp larvae that then drain down into our aquarium and can act as kind of in a sense as the open ocean you know the open ocean is where a lot of the little plankton spend time before they move back and and settle to the bottom so you could also think of our refuge tanks as an extension of the open ocean where some of these plankton and some of these larvae can develop and then just eventually be drained down into the aquariums so i guess kind of putting a couple of these things together do people commonly use refugia to also act as um you know, areas to grow some of the plants you were talking about, maybe the calerpa or yeah, some of the other algae. Yeah, definitely. Some people, you know, they'll mix the two together, a sump and a refuge. It's just that, you know, by having a refuge tank where you're growing this macroalgae, which is serving to remove nutrients, uh, if you grow it in your main system, of course, it can break off and, and can cause problems in your main aquarium. So that's why a lot of people would, would keep them in a refuge or in a sump and have separate lighting for that. Uh, some of our, our refugia tanks are illuminated. Some of them are not. Uh, the one with the peppermint shrimp in it does not have a, a direct light on it, so there's not much photosynthesis going on in there. Some of them are really well lit, and so we get lots of, of light growing in there. But anywhere where you can grow algae, and especially you know if it's separate from your system so you don't have to worry about it getting into your main system uh, directly you know, through bits and pieces, is an excellent way of, of exporting nutrients from an aquarium. So you mentioned a little bit about you know the uh, the peppermint shrimp and feeding you know feeding the corals with our tamias and and a little bit all about lighting. Do you, do you have any any uh, words of wisdom on I guess lighting in general and also you know the the question of feeding corals and and what and how much and that sort of thing? 
Yeah, you know, uh, well, I, I should mention, I probably should have mentioned early on, a, a lot of my my uh, information and my understanding is anecdotal. It's stuff that we see, stuff that I've talked to, stuff that we've learned over the years from from uh, keeping aquariums and being around people keeping aquariums. And uh, again, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of variability in what people will tell you is how much lighting you need. And again, it depends on what you're you're trying to keep. Obviously, if you're going to keep deeper water corals, you would need less lighting. If you're going to keep corals like the uh, croperids uh, that live in very shallow, high-energy environments, you need uh, a lot of lighting. I was just I just ran the numbers on our our Pacific tank we do have here, and uh, I think that ends up being a little bit over um, five watts per gallon. And um, and you know I've heard people say up to ten watts per gallon, down to two watts per gallon. And you know watts are not necessarily the best way to judge lighting because that's an, an energy measurement. But um, we are uh, I'm a big fan of metal halide lights. I, I know there are a lot of other ways of lighting aquariums. Again, it would come down to what you're trying to grow. You know we have used compact fluorescence. Um, we haven't really delved into the LED lighting for our corals yet. I'm I'm not sure we're we're ready for that. Um, but given the environments that you know our tanks, most of them are at least four feet deep, so we need light to penetrate deeper. And it seems still to me like metal halide lights are the best way to go as far as getting an intense light output. We tend to lean towards daylight spectrum, so we don't use the 20K bulbs. Again, we're trying to simulate nature, and we want people to see the color and the diversity, and if you have those really blue lights, which does cater to the corals, that's uh, exactly the wavelength of light that the zooxanthellae and the corals need, then you know, if all you're trying to do is cater to the corals, then you can go with those blue lights. But if you want to keep brown algae in an aquarium, then you need to have yellow and green light. If you want to keep red algae, you need blue light. If you, know, if you want green algae, you need um, red light and, and blue light. So depending on what you want, but us trying to mimic nature, we just tend to use what is considered you know, the, the same overall color temperature of the sun. And so our lights tend to range from 5,000 Kelvin to uh, 6,500 degrees Kelvin. Um, which is just a measure of the overall color output, you know, what the, the overall light looks like. Um, the higher the number, like 10, 20,000 K, those are the really, really blue bulbs. Uh, and you get down to about two or 3,000 Kelvin, and then you're looking at the incandescent lights like that we used to use at home, which will not, not grow corals at all. What about feeding? And you, you had mentioned that a little bit, and, uh, you know, what's too much, or uh, is there a way to kind of gauge that? Well, you know, the, the reef-building corals, and it, it varies, and the scientists are always hedging their bets, so to speak, um, but from the numbers that I've seen in the scientific literature, uh, corals are anywhere from 90, reef-building corals, anywhere from 90 to 99 percent dependent on their symbiotic algae. Uh, and, you know, that, and, and in fact, their corals, reef-building corals, are living in a desert. I mean, that's why the, the water is so clear. So it would then follow that they're they're not really too dependent on catching a lot of food. Uh, having said that, we do add Artemia noplii as a substitute for zooplankton to our big coral reef tank every night. Uh, I think I also mentioned that we add live phytoplankton to, to our aquariums as, as well. Um, we do not really target any of our, our corals on display. So it's kind of hard for me to say, well, you know, I, I say that. We've kept corals in other aquariums, the same corals we have in our big displays that we do feed, we have in other aquariums that we don't add any Artemia noplii to. 
and I honestly can't see the difference, and not that I've done it, you know, scientifically, but uh, those corals seem to me to grow as, as fast as the corals that we are feeding the, the systems overall. So there may be more zooplankton in general because you guys are kind of managing your systems a little differently from, I think, what the way a lot of people do? Yeah, we, we don't use any sort of mechanical filtration. The protein skimming, which is also a way that you could inadvertently remove plankton and other organisms from the water that might be food. So we're not feeding, you know, we're not target feeding the corals. Now, I guess that's that's not entirely true. We have some of our larger polyped corals, um, some of the, like the open brain corals, um, we, we do feed those some. And sort of my, my feeling is on that is if a coral has big polyps, then it's probably a little more important for it to catch food than something like a parietes or an acropora. You know, we have squirted Artemia anoplii onto some of these corals and they don't even seem to stick to them. Um, that is especially true of the parietes. So again, I'm, I'm not really sure how much supplemental feeding is, is needed for these corals, especially if it comes down to a nutrient balance thing. I do have to say, just you know, having been over there a few times, that you've got some of the uh, the most uh, incredible and, and healthy looking corals you know I've ever seen, and uh, you know definitely the you know the Caribbeans are are just you know spectacular. So I think a lot of people are probably surprised that um, that you don't have an incredibly not that there isn't a lot of technology involved, but you know a lot of the, the people tend to think I think that you really need a lot of technology to keep these things in um, you know in really nice condition. Yeah, no, that I don't think is is true at all. Like I said earlier, you can do it very simplistically. You just have to know where you where you are, where your nutrient levels are, you know. And if they are, um, and again, you can find a range of of levels. But we definitely try to keep both our nitrates and our phosphates, uh, and we do keep them below one one part per million, one milligram per liter. Um, but you know, if we would find them being elevated, then we would. You know, either turn up, like I said, turn up our, our algae scrubbers or do water exchanges, which is uh, an alternative to somebody that, that is not using uh, algae scrubbers. So, unfortunately, we're getting close to the end of the uh, interview. Where can our listeners get good information? You've covered a lot of ground, and I know there's probably folks that want to maybe get additional info on, on some of the areas that you discussed. I'm a big fan of peer-reviewed books. Okay. Um, you any... There are, you know, a, a number, even one as old as the, well, I think he has a new edition now, but Martin Mode's book on um, the Marine Aquarium Reference, which is not a, a, a glossy book at all. It has, you know, all the same good information that the, the newest books have, um, minus maybe the, the vodka and the nitrates. <laughs> so, uh, you know, like I said, I'm a big fan of, of reading. Um, also, you know, your local aquarium stores, um, the the hobby clubs are a great resource. These are people that you know are very passionate and very excited about what they're doing, and, and quite often want to convey that to to everyone. So that is a, an amazing reference. If you have a, a local aquarium club in the area, I would recommend them uh, or aquarium stores, uh, especially if you you know you buy your specimens from them. Uh, it gets a little more questionable, I guess, if. If you know if you're ordering everything online and and having problems and then go to an aquarium store, I've seen that happen too, where they're a little less willing. But um, it's it's good to set up relationships with local stores and local aquarium clubs 
those are people that are always reading, always learning, you know, and again, are going to have their own ideas, but at least they're usually tempered by having bounced off of other people with, with similar interests and, and backgrounds. Yeah, those are definitely some good choices, and we think seem to come back to that quite a bit. I agree with you. The Internet's great in many, many ways and has helped a lot with information dissemination, but it's always, uh, you always got to be a little more cautious and, you know, having access to good books and, and, uh, and people through clubs uh, as well are, are great references. So, unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, did you have any final thoughts at all, Bill, on, on, on reefs, reef aquaria, or the Smithsonian uh, Institution? No, I mean, for the, the hobby, the only thing, you know, again, it, it comes down to water quality and um, learning your, your animals, the, what you're keeping. Uh, I used to think it was funny. I'd go to the exhibit, and, you know, Walter Eddy would be there looking at what, at the time, was my exhibit in a way. And he would say, oh, you know, this doesn't look good, or I, I think we have a water quality problem. And I would just look at him like, what? What are you seeing? But now, having been doing this for the last uh, almost 20 years now, I understand what he's saying. So, you know, you look at your animals every day, you pay attention to them, look closely at them. I'm talking about, you know, corals and and fishes as well. And uh, you do get a sense for when things are changing and when things are are maybe not doing as well and when you need to act on it. But, uh, yeah, I would say start simple as as far as filtration and, and your setup. Uh, it definitely does not need to be a, a complex thing. You know, you can spend a lot of money and have almost everything automated, or you can just do everything pretty simply and, and just keep an eye on your qu- water quality and your organisms to make sure they appear healthy and, and take the, sort of the cheap way out, which doesn't make it any less uh, visually appealing, I think. Our mission here at the Smithsonian Marine Ecosystems Exhibit is is to help give people a better appreciation and a sense of awe for these marine environments, uh, hopefully to instill a, a better sense of stewardship because we hear more and more these days we are all tied to the oceans and the health of the oceans for the overall well-being of our planet. I know you used to have uh, cameras in some of the... The tanks are those online yet, or are they still kind of working on those? Um, we're we're having intranet problems, and so okay, okay. Uh, until we get those resolved, and, and that should happen in February, we're going to get a new system, and uh, we will have our webcams back up and running on our coral reef aquarium, which I'm extremely excited about because I, I toyed with this right before it went down, but I put red lights on the system, and uh, in fact, I could see you know probably larvae of crabs and, and fish that we have in the tank, but I could actually see larvae moving through or around the camera and saw cardinal fish that you never see in our exhibit during the day was out zipping across the the lens of the camera. So I'm excited about getting the webcam back up on our coral reef. And we also have one on the seagrass exhibit too. But look for those to come back online in in February. That sounds great. Well, I appreciate your uh, spending time with us, Bill, and I'm definitely looking forward to getting uh, those things back online so we can visit your corals every day. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy, D-R-R-O-Y, at PetLifeRadio.com. That's drroy at PetLifeRadio.com. If you're ever in Florida, please be sure to visit the Smithsonian Marine Ecosystems exhibit in Fort Pierce and uh, ask for Bill. And maybe Bill, if he has time, can give you a walkabout. Also, be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores, buy more fish, keep your tanks and fish healthy, and consider a reef aquarium. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand. 
only on PetLifeRadio.com.